hey man, I'm so sorry to bother you at home. Whoa, it's so cold. What the hell? O'Connell? It's three o'clock in the morning. I just, um, we're recording tomorrow night and I just, I just don't, I don't have it, man. I need, I need some of the good stuff. I need, I need some shallot. Jesus Christ, you come to my home where my children play? Your children are 65 years old, Gene. Mahjong. We play Mahjong. God damn it. Get in here before Richard Roper sees you. Now, what the hell is your problem? I just, I just don't have it. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to pull together a cold open. I'm trying to think of something funny to say about these movies. And I'm just, I, I don't know, man. I just, I need that gonzo off the wall. Who cares what anyone thinks of me? Energy that only a gram of shallot can provide. Can I, can I, can I just get a hit off of your mustache comb or something? Have some respect for yourself. Now, what are the movies you idiots are talking about this week? Um, we're, uh, we're doing the Robin Williams movie, RV. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what do you got? Um, I don't know, man. Um, RV, more like P-U. And? That's it, that's it, man. I'm telling you, I need, I need help. Come on, just, just let me suck on your bow tie. Enough with that. All right, let me work, let me work. RV, more like oy vey. Uh... RV, more like starve me, which is the curse I asked the good Lord to blight me with when the fine people at NBC told me I had to review RV. Um, how about I'd rather be struck by an RV than have to watch a movie about one? That'll do, pig. Excuse me? What else are you reviewing? Uh, Aquila and the Bee? What the fuck is that? It's, uh, it's about a young girl. No time for that. But you just... No time, I says. But how can you... I don't need to know what it's about, because I know what you three idiots are about. Excuse me? Aquila and the bee, more like our Sheila is a bee. What? You know, because that lady who listens to your show has been turned into a murder hornet and yada yada. No, I, I get it, but what does it have to do with the movie? Who knows? I never watched the movies. But you don't have to watch a movie to be able to make fun of it. There's no movie I can't joke about. What's next? United 93. You're fucked. <laughs> Coming soon. This summer. At theaters everywhere. Opening weekend. Read it R. Welcome to episode 47 of Opening Weekend, the movie podcast that travels back in time to revisit opening weekends of the past and revel in that other great American pastime, going to the movies with our friends. I am Jason O'Connell, and I am once again joined by my dear friends Fred Berman and Dan Matisa. And this week, we travel back to April 28th, 2006, and three of that week's major releases, RV, starring Robin Williams and written by this week's very special guest, Jeff Rodkey, who has a resume filled with writing credits for big comedy star vehicles, having also written the screenplays for Eddie Murphy's Daddy Daycare and Tim Allen's The Shaggy Dog. We're very excited to chat with Jeff about the art and the business of screenwriting and his various experiences in the world of film comedy. Uh, in addition to RV, though, we'll also be reviewing Aquila and the Bee, starring Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett, and Paul Greengrass's 9-11 docudrama United 93. 
But before we speak with Jeff and dive into the week's releases, Fred and Dan, where were you boys in April of 2006? I'll tell you exactly where I was. Go I ahead. know exactly where all three of us were. What? 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 We were all together having dinner on East 2nd Street at a restaurant called Supper. And I'll tell you why, because... What? I'm trying to figure out what I was I doing around this time. And I've mentioned this before. Kate keeps all her calendars and she would, huh? she'd get these wall calendars and she would write down that it was like her journal. So, and we recently just got her basement done. And so we had to move all this stuff around. And I remember I found all her calendars and I knew exactly where I put them. And as I'm thinking last night, I'm like, where the hell was I in 2006 around this time? What was I doing? And I thought, let me check one of these calendars. I found the calendar and on April 28th, 2006, the three of us, and I'm assuming our respective Six others at the others. time, yeah. I don't yeah. know, all went to dinner at this place called Supper on East 2nd Street because it says on the calendar, dinner with Dan and Jason at Supper. Then we went to a place called Mo Pitkins on Avenue A. It was called Mo Pitkins House of Satisfaction. My friend Mike Hogan was a bartender there. And then Steve Hogan made uh, uh, met us later and we hung out there. And I also I remember, remember this dinner. Kate always talks about this dinner as being one of the funniest nights. She's like, I've never laughed so hard because we were talking about, and we've talked about this on the podcast. I guess at that dinner, <laughs> we were talking about the Halloween party where Dan got completely naked, <laughs> where he was Tinkerbell. Now, and he took that off was the all year his, before. That's that was right. the year. And he was like, no, 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 it's funny you're naked. It's funny you're naked. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember which episode that was, but <gasps> yeah. And, and we were, and Kate said that, she was howling like we were laughing so hard that we were banging on the table and people <gasps> and were looking at us. the people next to us got upset. Yeah, yeah. I do remember this. I do remember this. They were like, hey, could you stop banging on the table? <laughs> oh, that's and so And we were like, we're so sorry. Funny. I do. That is the thing I remember about this dinner. Now I I'm having a vivid memory of it. And wow. Did Dan, and did Dan do the thing where he gets the check and then he makes it fly out of his hand? Because <laughs> he does that usually. I think that would Probably. have been a, another bit. I can't remember. That's amazing. Like why if we were, because I, I wasn't doing a show then. I don't know if, if I you was, like, maybe you guys, I was doing a show called Wolf Pit. I don't know if you guys saw it. Yes. So, yes I, I did that. see it with the Phoenix. Yes. Yeah. The Phoenix Theater Ensemble. It was yeah. about Mary Queen of Scots, right? It, no, that was the lifeblood. That was a couple of years later, but it was oh. by the same playwright, Glenn yeah. Maxwell. Oh, no, that? Wolf Pit was this, it, it was this, um, Actually, Fred, you, God, this is when Wolf Pit was running in rep with complete works of Shakespeare abridged and you were supposed to do it. But then didn't you get, weren't you, yes, did you have your was, appendix out or something? Yes, this oh, was, it. I was in, the, in, in the calendar. I was looking back because that's what I thought this was. Yeah, I was supposed to do. So I was in, I was in Florida doing a show. I got back in February and at the end, our friend Mike Sarabian asked me, to be a part of the complete works of William Shakespeare Bridge. And I was yep. like thrilled. And it was, it was me, him, our friend, Brian Costello, and this and guy, Matt Neely, Matt I Neely. believe. Yeah. And we were, we were into rehearsals, which was a few, this was the end of March, I believe when this happened. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were in a rehearsal and I was, and I had to stop because I was getting the worst headache. I, I normally don't get headaches. I was getting the worst headache of my life. And I'm like, oh, I'm boy. so sorry, guys. I, I, I need to, stop rehearsal and they were like, it's okay. And I didn't know what it was. And I was like, Oh God, they think I'm like a fucking diva or something. <laughs> and then it turned out the next night I wake up and 
in the middle of the night, I'm in all this pain and whatever, long story short, it was my appendix and I had to have my oh appendix my taken out. God. So I couldn't do the show. I still give Kate shit about it to this day because <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't figure out what this pain was. And I looked it up and I'm like, I think it might be my appendix. And I went to the hospital by myself. And then she met me there later. And I was like, remember she that time when you, you to the took hospital me to, immediately? I was like, remember when you took me to the hospital and you took care of, oh, wait a minute. Oh no. I went by myself. I no, took myself there. She takes well, care of me all the time. She's a wonderful, oh, wonderful but I do. I remember that. Vividly. Yeah. But so, right. So That's I couldn't crazy. do the show because they and took I my remember, appendix out. And yeah. I remember you thinking, I swear to God, I remember you being like, they're going to be mad at me. And I was like, why are you going to be mad at you? You, you? you had your appendix out. You're healing. You can't be running around in that fucking show. I'm, I've done that show eight times. You can't to do it. To this day, I still think that Mike Sarabian thought that maybe I was lying just to get out of the show. I have been in this business 52 years, and I will, I've never seen anything like this. When one gets one's appendix out, do they do they show it to you? Do they give it to you? Like what happens with it? I have it right here. It's sitting next to my computer. (laughs) Uh, Right here. I keep it as a token and I just rub it in Kate's face whenever I feel ill. And she's like, you're fine. I'm like, really? And I hold it up. And I go, really? Does this look like I feel fine? Remember this? <laughs> no, you no, you don't, because I went by myself. And then I slam it down. And sometimes I like to just throw it in her face and say, you know, look at my appendix. Good look thinking. at my appendix. This is what you did to me. Oh, no, you, you go uh, right I into young Pacino as you do it. Yeah, exactly. Elva! <laughs> um, it was... Uh, I, no, I didn't get to see it. It was... Oh, fuck. I just remember being you know, dragged in and we were like, all right, we're going to give you some drugs. You know, we're going to put the IV in. And then I was out and then I woke up and, but I remember it was very nice. Like I seemed to like, you guys came to visit me. I remember you, Jason, I think. Hallucination. No, no, I believe, I believe I did actually. I I feel like like you and Steve Hogan and a few other people, Dan did not come because he doesn't care. No, Um, Dan just doesn't remember. He might've come. I might've been been there. there. I might've been the person that took you there. I don't remember. (laughs) I don't you were the guy who took out my appendix, actually. <laughs> That's what it was. And yeah, then we you had it at, next to your computer, Dan. Yeah. Do you have his appendix? And it was you're, you're, it holding, you're holding it uh, like Mola Ram, you know, <laughs> just pulsing in your hand. I was like, what's happening? And then and you're like, Kalima will rule the world, right? <laughs> I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's right. But uh, I think I was, but by this week, I was okay. Obviously, I was okay. I yeah. was out and about. We were laughing heartily at at at, uh, at supper. And then we went to Mo Pitkins. And, but so you were still doing the show at that time. Well, it wow. might have closed by then, but I was doing it in, you know, like March and April of 2006. But maybe it closed because I was probably a couple weeks away from heading back to Nebraska Shakespeare because I was going to do Petruchio and Taming the Shrew there. Um. I think that was probably mid-May that I went. So yeah, maybe Wolf Pit had wrapped up at this point, but yeah, that had been in rep with Complete Works. And and Wolf Pit was this really cool, like I said, this by this playwright and poet, Glenn Maxwell. It's just very cool. It's called Wolf Pit. The, t- the funny thing is I happened to just randomly happened to have the, the, the play script in my room on on my desk right now it's like a volume of his plays um it's called i have an appendix you have a play but i know isn't that funny (laughs) the tale of the green children of suffolk and it's apparently this it was this you know this this kind of based on this kind of folk tale or these these um uh 
there are records of like these green children that were found in this this rural part of England. And you've got everything from people who believe that they were aliens to people who are like, oh, they were just malnourished children who had just gotten oh. so you know, severely jaundiced or something. Oh, you know, um, uh, but God knows, God knows what the story was. But but mm. when Maxwell wrote this beautiful, very poetic disturbing play about mm. what would happen if these children were assimilated into a society and one assimilated successfully and one not and and how this one child basically shrivels and dies and the other one starts to lose the green and starts to become become like the rest of the society like she learns the language while the other child is resistant she winds up having a sexual relationship with somebody who's uh, my character who's really more of a father figure who takes the kids in initially and it's like you know it's a little bit of a nature versus nurture argument too it's, it's a great play i thought it was a great does, play does she wind up winning the script spelling bee <laughs> and she well yes but it's all these it's this weird like maybe she is an alien <laughs> I think she spelled that correctly, but I don't know. Let's give it to her. <laughs> Let's give Close it to her. Close enough. But you know what? If we were at that restaurant on the night of the 28th, I know where I was the morning of the 29th. I was oh, seeing Jesus. United 93 at our oh, old movie theater in Astoria. Oh, and, wow. uh, the one right there, the uh, Kaufman, Kaufman Astoria. Because I remember I saw it that week. I saw it opening weekend and I saw it like an early morning show. You know, so disturbed, you know, went by myself. It was like just such a, I, I, you know, we'll talk about it later, but, you know, a really intense experience, but one that I was like, I I felt like I needed, needed to go. I was, I kind of was upset. This was the fifth anniversary. You were pretty obsessed with all things 9-11, as I recall. I I was living with you at this time. Yeah, that year. I, yeah, I was in general and, and, and that year, the the fifth anniversary of it, I remember right after you had moved out and I took your... I moved into your room after you moved in with Brett. And I remember that was, you know, you must have moved in the late summer or something. And so right around like literally the fifth anniversary, I remember like really going down a rabbit hole of like reading so much about, I was just, it was a hard thing to shake. And there was something about that fifth anniversary, you know, now we're coming Mm -hmm. up on the 20th, but the the fifth anniversary was, you know, it was that first kind of benchmark after the one year, the one year anniversary, then the next big one is five. And yeah. and I just remember, and there was this movie and then there was the Oliver Stone World Trade Center movie, which mm-hmm. yeah. I think is far inferior, but, you know, uh, it's a very different kind of movie. A much well, more you were Hollywood really obsessed movie. with the Michael Moore uh, documentary about oh, it absolutely. as well. You watched that a hundred times. I Fahrenheit 9-11. Oh yeah, yeah. I have. Yeah. I own that movie. I did. I watched that a lot while we were living together. That's true i put yeah. it on a lot you God. did you just would have it on in the background while you were I like, cleaning, was like cleaning my cooking. room absolutely <laughs> wow i did you know the big memory uh of of this time living with you jason the great thing about living with jason is that there's always fresh vegetables in the crisper <laughs> and it's usually broccoli yes but behind the fresh broccoli is weak old broccoli. Yes, oh, and behind that, that in the crisper is month old broccoli. And behind that in the crisper <laughs> is a bag of brown liquid that was once broccoli <gasps> that has just disintegrated into nothing. Because God bless him, the man loves his broccoli, but he often doesn't eat it. He will often just leave it in there. 
until it disintegrates into a, until it liquefies, friend. Oh, it will I liquefies. I don't remember that. Did it but, look anything um, like the the stuff that shot out of the poop pipe in RV? Oh, mm. <laughs> I can't speak to what it looked like after he ate it, but <laughs> what was in the back of the crisper? Absolutely, looked yeah, like that. that's an ironic name for that drawer since it clearly didn't do its job. <laughs> You You're can't blame to, the drawer. You're supposed to make things crisp. Look at you being all liquidy. I'll get to you after I finish this pizza. You should be good. It's not the liquefier. <laughs> yeah, maybe I was trying to make a smoothie the old-fashioned way. You ever think Letting of that? Nature maybe take its course. <laughs> That's Look called composting. What you're, you're making is compost. A Look compost how smoothie, smoothie it's getting. So smoothie. With you. One day you're going to grow up, you'll meet a wonderful guy, and you're going to get married. But you and I will always be best friends. Dad, could you be any more of a dork? What happened to that little girl who used to go, Daddy's home? Guess. God, what? Nothing. Oh. We watch TV in four separate rooms, and we eye on each other when dinner's ready. Well, then let's change things. outside our house oh my god it's your husband the monroes are a typically dysfunctional american family complete with rebellious uncommunicative children and baffled exhausted parents patriarch bob played by robin williams would like to remedy the situation with a family vacation and while wife jamie played by cheryl hines and their kids are looking forward to a hawaiian getaway work commitments force bob to covertly change their travel plans at the very last minute as he rents a motorhome to take his clan on a road trip to the Rocky Mountains, where Bob has a big work presentation he's keeping secret from the family. Also starring Jeff Daniels and Kristen Chenoweth, RV was written by our special guest Jeff Rodkey and directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. RV did post the weekend's biggest opening, taking in $16.4 million on its way to a domestic total of $71.7 million and a worldwide total of $87.5 million. We had the pleasure of talking with Jeff Rodkey, who is a prolific screenwriter and author, and our very own Fred Berman uh, has recorded and is about to record uh, the audiobook versions of uh, of several of Jeff's works. And the most uh, recent one, the one you're about to start, is called... Lights Out in Lincolnwood. Mm. Yeah, it's his first Lincoln. adult novel. Uh, he's written tons of uh, young adult and children's books. Really great stuff. And this one comes out in, in July, I believe. So I'm, I'm really excited. Mm. That's great. But I bet he's also had, especially in the early aughts, he had... Quite a prolific career as a, uh, a, a produced screenwriter, um, uh, doing the likes of uh, writing the likes of Daddy Daycare, which uh, ultimately uh, starred Eddie Murphy, obviously, and The Shaggy Dog, which was also a 2006 release starring Tim Allen. But um, I think one of his his biggest hits actually was the uh, Robin Williams comedy RV. And we chatted with Jeff about that and so much more in uh, in this interview. So welcome. Uh, welcome, so welcome. I'll, I'll, I'll give a little Thank background. So Jeff and I met because I was very fortunate to have narrated Jeff's first book. So it was a trilogy. Uh, right. a, a trilogy. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was Three a trilogy. Uh, the uh, Dead Weather and Sunrise books, The Chronicles of Eggs, which I thought were wonderful. Um, they're like Worst a young adult. titles in 
in the history of children's <laughs> books. I the I still lie awake at night going, why, why did we call the the Chronicles of Egg? That's just the, it's the worst. I, I think it, it sounds, I think it sounds charming. I, I if, don't know. If I, my, my fantasy is that I will someday be able to re-release them and, and book one will be called Dead Weather Island. And then the trilogy will be called the Dead Weather Trilogy, because then you at least understand that Dead Weather is an island. And since then, Jeff has written a lot of other books, The Tapper Twins, um, We're Not From Here, all these books that my son loves. I actually asked mm. my son, I was like, hey, I'm going to be talking with Jeff tonight. Do you have any questions? And I swear to God, this is my 13-year-old son's only question. He said, ask him how he writes so many great books. Wow. So there you go. Well, that made my day. Yeah, yeah. No, he he oh, loved them. That's great. Um, no, but I was talking to Jeff and I was like, just asking like what other stuff he'd done, which is like the worst question. So what else have you done? Um, but I was just curious, like what other, because I knew this was his first book and he mentioned that he'd written some screenplays and I was thinking, oh, that's so cool. Like what? And immediately I sensed a shift. There was this weird <laughs> energy shift where you're like, well, I, I, I did some movies and you know you probably heard of them and I could tell there was, there was something weird. And so I was like, well, what were they? And then you mentioned daddy daycare. And I think you mentioned RV as well. And that shaggy dog had come out of that point. Yeah. Shaggy dog actually came out like six weeks before RV. You had mentioned all of them and I'd heard of all of them. And I was like, holy shit, that's incredible. And again, I could, I, I sensed that there was, an unease about it. And there was something, I don't know, un, un, unspoken. And you went into it a little bit just about the, the process of, you know, years you of sheer fucking misery that I was still processing. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. But I, but what I found fascinating was, and you sort of, you were, you mostly, you mostly talked about daddy daycare, how you mentioned that when you had written it and correct me if I'm wrong, cause it was a while ago, but it always stayed with me that you had written it, that you were, home, basically you were stay at home dad and you were with your boys at home and you had written it almost like with like an indie film feel behind it. And then it became something very, very different once Eddie Murphy became attached. And, you know, while you were, I, I, the impression I got was while you were super excited that it became this huge behemoth and, you know, obviously, you know, I'm sure you were well compensated. And yeah, well, it, it, I mean, it, my, my kids are currently going to college in the daddy daycare scholarship. So nice. Nice. You, nice. you can't, yeah. you can't argue with that. No, yeah. but there was also that sense I got that it was, it ended up being something very different than maybe where it started. And that's always fascinating. We were talking about this earlier, but like that process has always fascinated me. I wrote 25 screenplays, I think of which five became, uh, either a movie or one of them was a TV movie. Wow. Um, so, you know, 80% of what I wrote over about 13, 15 years uh, just never reached an audience. And, and, and this was, sorry to interrupt, this, this was during, because you sort of came into being during like the whole spec script craze, Yeah, I, right? I caught the very tail end of the spec script craze. So, so which is like legendary first, now. Yeah, huh. which was like, and huh. so it was, I sold my first script in 1997. And, hmm. and, and Daddy Daycare came out, was, Got, was the first one that got made. It was, I think, my like 13th or 14th screenplay. And, wow. and that came out in 2003. And for that, so there was this five or six year period where I was selling screenplays. It was, a, I think it was the seventh one that I had sold um, or the seventh thing that I'd gotten paid for. Cause there were like, there were a couple of pitches, there were a couple of rewrites, there was a book adaptation. And, um, 
And there was this five or six year period where I would go to cocktail parties and people would be like, by the way, not that many cocktail parties. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, but I, you know, I'd go and people were like, what do you do? And I'd be like, well, I'm a screenwriter. And they'd say, oh, anything I've, I've heard of. And I'd be like, no, really, I'm a screenwriter. I can't, I, I can't right. prove it to you, but I, I actually get paid for it. And, and I used to think that was like the psychologically the worst possible thing. And then I actually sure. got a movie made and I realized, no, actually the worst possible thing is when you get a movie made. Because oh, boy. when I, when I sold my first script in 97, I had one of the, I, I had a bunch of meetings with producers and one of them was this guy, Gavin Pallone. Uh, and, and I remember I, I made some joke about like, well, they're probably going to rewrite me. And, and he goes, you better hope they rewrite you because that means they're going to make the movie. And I was like, okay, oh, whatever wow. guy who knows a lot more than I do. And, <laughs> and it turned out I never got rewritten until daddy daycare when they decided to make the movie and instantly I got rewritten. And then from wow. everything else, like RV, once they decide they're putting it into production, the first thing they do is they go out and get another writer. And it, it wasn't about me. It's just the way the system works. Yeah. Like from, and, and I read that one point there was a, there's a really great book about the history of screenwriting called what happens next, which was written by a guy named Mark Norman who uh, shared the Oscar with Tom Stoppard for Shakespeare in love. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. And this process of like just going through writers like tissue paper dates back to like silent films. <laughs> like it's literally yeah. it's just always been the culture that the writer is the one replaceable cog. And and the way a producer explained to me explained it to me one point was like the the budget of a major studio movie is so high that spending another like you know getting a really expensive script doctor and giving him a million dollars isn't that doesn't matter on the, you know, to their bottom line that much. So, and they feel like, well, I'll feel better if I, if I spend another million dollars making sure it's a good script. Yeah. And, and so, so that so-and-so do a pass yeah. and, so the net, and the net result, some jokes. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes that, you know, and the, and, but the, the net result is that if you originate something uh, and it gets, it becomes a movie, it's not really going to be yours when it comes out. So, you know, and some people will have, more and less psychological trouble with that. I had a lot. Like Daddy Daycare was actually, um, it, it wasn't like, I wasn't trying to write like a like an indie, you know, like a gritty indie take on, you know, fatherhood. <laughs> it, was, it was always meant to be a studio movie, but this was a point, I you know, this was like six kids. years, <laughs> this is six years into my career at a point where I just thought of movies, like I thought of screenplay. I didn't think of them as movies because they never became movies. I just thought of them right. as the way my kids get healthcare. Because because gotcha. if I sell a screenplay that year, it might might get another year of coverage in the Writers Guild, right? So sure. I wasn't I didn't think and and it was the first family movie I made or, or a family screenplay I wrote. Like I never wrote a, a huh. you know until I and it was because I had a two year old and I was like stuck at home with him. Um, <laughs> but uh, and what happened? I actually remember the the thing that happened. Um, this is a long digression. You told me that it was going to be black and white. <laughs> it was going to have subtitles. <laughs> It was, it was, it was a true foe. It was actually, it was, a, you know, if, yeah. if the kid who steals the typewriter grew up yeah, and you had said a kid. Oscar Werner Fassbender <laughs> was, was a I remember this, this, well, this was, this was psychologically, this is my relationship with Daddy Daycare. I was on the phone with a friend of mine, Matt Berenson, who's a film producer who wound up producing Daddy Daycare. And, uh, and we're, we're just trying to come up with movie ideas. And I'm sitting there and I'm stuck at home with this, like, it was, he was about, <laughs> I don't know, he's less than a year old and he's in a bouncy seat, my son. And, I, and I'm sitting on the floor of my kitchen, staring at my kid in the bouncy seat and he's staring back at me. And I'm on the phone with Matt and I said, I have an idea, 
but I don't want to tell you what it is because I think you're going to make me write it. <laughs> and he goes, what is it? And I said, guy loses his job, opens a daycare center in his home. And he's like, yes. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and I was like, shit, really? And he's like, yes, <laughs> let's definitely, yes, let's do it. So that's where daddy daycare came. But I, I didn't, I didn't want to be a guy who wrote family films, but then once, you know, once that happened, it, it kind of happened. And then, and what happened was Matt moved over. He was working under uh, John Davis, who was sort of the larger producer who did daddy daycare. And, and then he moved to a company called Red Wagon, which was Doug Wick and Lucy Fisher, who uh, were producers who like, they won the Oscar for Gladiator. Um, they, they've done mm-hmm. a lot. They did a lot. And they, um, and they had a deal at Sony uh, or Columbia. And, um, and Lucy had this idea that was based on, uh, sh- on, on an experience she had when her kids were younger. She had gone – she and Doug, when they had really little kids, had gone on an RV vacation with two other couples, Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman and Harrison Ford and Melissa Matheson. Come on. No, completely serious. Oh, my God. This, well, this is the story as it was told to me, right? It's, it's possible this is all apocryphal, but this is what was told to me. <laughs> They they went on this tri- on this RV vacation. They got a caravan of three different families, three different RVs, and it was a disaster <laughs> because everything just kept breaking down. You know, like the plumbing, the electrical, you know, all kinds of shit. And 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 the the only saving grace was Harrison Ford because he'd been a carpenter for a while and it was really handy. Right. And and Harrison could fix the, the shit as it was breaking down, but he was having such a horrible time that he and his family flew home early. They just abandoned the whole thing and left the other he two probably couples. Flew them home. Just he you probably know. did. We walk from here. Let's get the fuck out of here, shorty. Come on. So Lucy, for some reason, had always had this idea. We're like, we should do this, but I think for a while it was too close to National Lampoon's vacation. And then by this point, it's like yeah. 2002 and she's like, it's been long enough. There hasn't been a family vacation movie. What about a family who's on vacation in an RV? <clears throat> and so and I came in because, you know, I knew Matt who was working for them. And and I had had this experience growing up of we lived in, in, in a town in Northern Illinois, but we had a, a small cabin in this out of the way valley in, in Colorado. It was about 1100 miles away. And it was, it was like, it was kind of the middle of nowhere. We had no, you know, we had no phone, we had no TV, we had no washer dryer, hmm. but it was in this valley where there were other vacation homes. And, um, and there were a lot of Texans who would vacation there. And, and so we would drive every summer 1100 miles to Colorado. And I was stuck in the back seat with my sit, my older sister. She was three years older than me. She hated me. Um, and like, you know, like she would, she would, she would, she would make me like lie down on the, on the floor where the, the transmission hump was. And she would take the entire like back seat herself. Like it was like that kind of, she was, you know, it was, it was unpleasant. So, so I had that experience of like, you know, long family car rides and, and then when we got, you know, when we spent time in Colorado, culturally, and this is, you know, this is the 1980s, like people from Texas were different from people from Illinois. Mm-hmm. Like they would wear cowboy hats non-ironically. And, <laughs> and it was just, you know, and they, and they had, you know, they had funny accents, right? And, and yes. they, and, yes. and, and different sort of cultural preoccupations and things. So, so all of this stuff wound up getting into RV in various ways. Mm. I had this agent at the time, Barbara Dreyfus, who, who was, is since deceased. Um, 
and uh but was like a one of these just sort of like very like old hollywood like really like came up in the 80s and i think you know at one point she told me like she boy she really used to like cocaine um and, and <laughs> but she was she was this, she was a classic hollywood agent and we had we pitched it because because the Doug and Lucy had a deal at sony and so that was the first place we had to pitch it and we took it to an executive there and we pitched it to her and she just didn't like it and she passed on it. Oh. And oh. so we, st- we pitched it everywhere else to all the other studios and the rest of them passed on it. And, and I have never had in, in the entire time I worked, you know, in the film business, I never had an experience where you pitched at a studio and they passed on it and you went back and pitched again and they bought it. It was just like once it, it didn't matter like who you talk to. It's just like you, you got one shot at that studio and then you're dead. Barbara Dreyfus nice. called up the executive who had passed on it and browbeat her so <gasps> relentlessly that finally she said, look, like one of my colleagues has been out for a week on set. He doesn't know I heard the pitch. Just pretend I never heard it and just bring it back into him. And that was this guy, Doug Belgrad, who eventually wound up as the, the president of Sony for a while. And so we pitched it to Doug, not telling him that we'd already pitched it to one of his colleagues she passed on it. And, and, and he bought it. And so I wrote a couple of drafts of the script. And there was a point at which they were actually they, – they, I think they could have gotten it made with Tim Allen. And they were like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't – maybe we can do better. So they, they, we, we, did a th- we did another pass – and in some ways, I think that got that pass got better, and in some ways, it got worse. And and that was the mm. one that it attracted Robin. And so then, once Robin yeah. was attached, you know, my optional steps on the on my deal were done. And then mm. they were just like, "Okay, great job." And I didn't hear anything for two years. And then Doug calls me up, and he's like, "Hey, we're going to make your movie." <laughs> and oh, and that was God. you know, and that was it. And the, and the weird thing, the, the the thing that's hard when you when you originate a script like that, it's like it's like you have a child and you raise the child to age twelve, and then the child is taken from you and raised to adulthood by like a a, a nice couple from Beverly Hills. And then at some point, at some point, the social worker who who took the kid from you. Calls you up and is like, "Hey, uh, he's graduating from college. Do you do you want to go to the to the graduation?" And by the way, uh, it says in the graduation program that that you raised him. <laughs> so we're not mentioning the other couple that you know that that have you know experienced the last six years of his life. But just pretend you're the you you raised him to adulthood. And then anyway, that's so that's what it is. And 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 that's why And whether people like this kid or not in real life. Some people they'll always look back to you, Daddy. Yeah. And they you know, they oh also we've spliced in somewhat someone else's genetic code. So he's not really right. yours anymore. He's, you know. Yeah, I was going to say he doesn't look like you or no one would even know. <laughs> yeah, which right. is which is why it's psychologically difficult to be of the course. first writer on a screenplay. Like I watched the movie this afternoon for the first time since it was in theaters. Like I have not wow. seen this movie in 15 years, but I've been talking about it for 15 years because I've been so mad about the changes that were made. And the weird thing was I watched it this time and I'm like, yeah, it wasn't that big a deal. It was like, oh. the thing I was mad oh, about funny. for, you know, the, 
15 years, I'm like, it's not, it doesn't matter that much. See, we bring people together on this podcast. We make things okay. But, but I will tell you, I mean, you've, you've all seen it at this point, right? Yeah. Yes. yes. So let me see if you can, there, so there's a thing in the first five minutes of the movie. There is an action that a character takes that in, in my drafts was taken by another character. Do you, do you have any idea what it might be? Is, did the daughter uh, wind up yes. throwing something on Will Arnett? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's, yes that makes that, a lot of and, sense. And, this and was, I was actually. This is what happened. So in the, original, in the original script, you know, the dad is a soda executive who's working incredibly long hours. And, and they go to the party at the, at the boss's house. And the daughter sneaks in a jar of liquefied animal fat and throws it on the guy's boss <laughs> because she's blaming him for the, you know, the, the, the diabetes epidemic, right. basically. Right and, here, right here, right. And, and the scene after that is like they're driving home and, and, the, and the dad is beside himself with fury at his daughter. And yep. the wife is like, it's your fault. And he's like, what are you talking about? And, and the wife says, this is a cry for help. You have broken so many promises to her. You were going to do this with her. Mm. You were going to do that with her. And, and you, you constantly ah. and you cancel every single time for work. Every single time work takes precedence over your daughter. And this Hawaii trip is your last chance. This is your last mm. chance to bond because she's going to college next year. And if you don't, if you don't get this relationship back, it's gone forever. And then the – that's the immediate great. next scene is you can't go to Hawaii and he's yeah. like, fuck. Yeah. And so, you know, and so he has to lie and that's the whole reason he lies about the trip. And, and the note wow. I got at one point wow. in the process was we feel like it makes the daughter seem too unsympathetic if she does that to her, her, her dad's boss. So can you, can you please have her like bring a friend along who does it? And, and the mm. thing was, I was like, well, no, because the daughter actually has a principled reason to be mad at her father. Like she, she's actually yeah. got a point of view. Like she really, you know, she's, she was sort of the t early 2000s version of a social justice warrior in a way. Right. But yeah. she really cared yeah. about environmentalism and she really cared about, you know, and, and cared about like public health and stuff. And it's the whole impetus for the trip. In yes, yeah. exactly. And the it's other the thing, impetus. the other thing in the, in that version was the daughter, when she hears, no, we're going to take an RV trip to Colorado instead, is like, absolutely not. I refuse to go. And then an hour later, she comes out of her bedroom and she's like, okay, fine, I'll go. And they're like, wow, that was a weird change. And what, happened, what, yeah. what happens is they get to Colorado and she runs away and joins a tree sit. Do you know what a tree sit is? <laughs> yes. It's like it's like yes. environmentalists yeah. will climb up a tree and live there so yeah. that they yep. can't and cut yeah. down the old yeah. growth forest. So, so she, she runs away and joins the tree sit and then he has to go back and like talk her down from the tree and they have this bonding thing, you know, and then after that, she finds out he's been lying the whole time. So, so it yeah. was really much more about the, the father and the daughter relationship. And which you can see from that opening scene where it's yeah. like about him with his daughter at the right. very, very, very beginning, yeah. his young daughter. I don't know if that was part of your well, screenplay this, or not, but I mean, that well, link this is, is the strong. weird thing. That scene was not in my screenplay. That, hmm. scene, that scene huh. with the daughter is a little kid, which actually it would have been great if it was. It should have been, <laughs> you know, it, like there's things. <laughs> it works with what you're well, saying. Well, this is the weird yeah. thing, right? Yeah, like, you know, somebody saying. comes in and replaces you. Some of the stuff they improve. Right. Like it, it's not just, you know, it's not just, oh my God, you, you destroyed my vision. Like they do a lot of good mm. stuff too. 
And, and so, you know, yeah. and that was, again, that's a scene like, yeah, that's, that, that's a great thing for charting the relationship between the, the dad and the daughter. But the thing that I think gets lost then is just, I don't understand, the daughter's just mad. Right, the daughter for no reason at all, yeah. and yeah. she's just kind of like yep. mean. And the wife doesn't have a point of view about anything, and they're actually kind of just. And and Robin is just like just beaten down and harried, and they're mm-hmm. they're honestly just like yeah. an unlikable family. <laughs> they they what? they seem unhappy, and you're not sure why. And yeah. what you described about that encounter between the husband and wife after the daughter takes that action makes so much sense, and actually helps i'm thinking as you're saying it i'm thinking of the entire plot about him hiding the work hiding the work while they're on vacation doing everything to get the cell signal and sneak the laptop into the bathroom and all these things where i'm like i'm like well geez why you know just you gotta work while you're on the trip i mean why are you lying the fact that the fact that work that that is the yeah. The thing that she associates so negatively with her relationship with her father is is how work has pulled him away. That makes perfect sense then for him to lie about every little thing Everything dealing else. with his job. Yeah. But in the finished version, you're kind of like it, it winds up being a little more sitcom because you're like, why are you killing yourself to to do all this? Just be like, honey, I got to take this call or we're on during our trip. We're going to this. I have I have a one hour meeting that I have to go to, you know, um, it's interesting. It's fascinating to hear you say that by making that change. You rob the daughter of a point of view and of a principled reason to be pissed off at her dad. So you actually make her much less sympathetic sympathetic. because she does not, she doesn't have an internal compass that has, has brought her into this, you know, into this conflict with her father. So it, you know, but it's, but the funny thing is like, if you don't know that, if you're not the guy who wrote the script, (laughs) you can, you can still enjoy the movie. And the, and the thing about, you know, I think about studio comedies like that is like, and this is going to sound very cynical, but some of those, the, the character arcs in a way are really, you're just, those are the, that's the clothesline that you, that you hang the jokes on in, in a way, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, like you're just, you're really like the, the, the sort of the comic heart of that movie is like, you know, the, the plumbing having, having to, having to empty the suit, you know, the, the, the sewage tank and like the crazy neighbors and the, the raccoon gets stuck in the, you know, and the, and the, and the driving the RV down the mountain, like it's all that stuff. And, and what you're really looking for is an arc that like, you know, that is, that is emotionally relatable, that, that gives people some kind of investment in it. And, and in a great movie, these things are all seamless, right? Mm-hmm. But like, but in a, in an okay movie, <laughs> which is what RV is, it's like, if it kind of like, what was interesting about it, like when I was watching it this time, I was like, I, I kind of understand what the character arcs are, but I don't totally get what everybody's problem with everybody else is, mm-hmm. but it still kind of works because I don't, you know, I'm just, I don't have to think too much about it. And yeah. <laughs> Did you notice changes from your original script in terms of like, all right, let's make this fit Robin Williams more? Or what was your yeah, experience? He he went into rehab right after this movie. <sighs> and I think he was really, I think he was really suffering. Well, he, and, I was checking in his, in his biography. He actually just, his divorce was pretty much finalized right before he went into this. Oof. So, oh, yeah. Wow. And I, I just, I, I, there's so many, there, there are a few scenes in that movie when I was watching it today where I'm just like, he just, he's just sad. Yeah. You know, he's just, he's just sad. You read it on him. You really do. It seems like it's, it's like a, 
it seems like his I hate to say it, his predominant state of being throughout. It's all tinged with some sadness, which works well for a lot of the plot and his regrets about, yeah. you know, like where things have gone with his family and 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 with his job. I mean, it actually fits in a way, but it does seem like it's it, it, it resides deeper that it's, yeah. that and, and it's I, his sadness a little bit. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. For what it's worth. And I just listened to sort of the the, the Good Morning Vietnam podcast today, mm. too, with Dave Itzkoff. Yeah. And talking about the, the sort of different stages of Robin's career. I remember at one point after the movie came out and did well, the producer saying something to me along the lines of like, well, this was really good for Robin because, boy, he was in a he was on a bad streak. Mm. And I think he had and I haven't gone back to look, but I think I think he'd had several box office misfires mm-hmm. in the in the in the years prior to that and really kind of needed something to you know and this one was like it did okay did it well. was like it was it like hit a single you know um it 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 made money one of the things that was left untouched is that entire sequence where he's changing uh the sewer t- the sewage tank mm-hmm. which just winds <laughs> up in the geyser of, yeah. of shit <laughs> I I wrote that. I remember writing an email to my parents one night that was I I just I just wrote an eight page poop joke at the behest of the Sony Corporation, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was really proud of it because structurally it was it just felt like a great building comic set piece, mm-hmm. and it came out and I watched it in, on a big screen and I said to myself that's disgusting. <laughs> And I did that. I, I was, I was literally, I was just like, I was like, this is gross. I was like, this, I really, I don't like this at all. I, Jesus. <laughs> so, that's amazing. You know, that's fantastic. I liked it a little more this time, actually. The poop didn't well, bother me quite as much. Part, partly because I was watching it on a very small screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not seeing all the detail of it hitting his face and right. going yeah. in his mouth. The, the visceral disgust of seeing it on a big screen was not. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us for this yeah. conversation. And you, you've got a you've got a new book coming out. Yeah. Plug yeah, it. Yeah, Fred's narrative. Yes. Let's plug my book. Yeah. Yes. Do it. Do it. Uh, Lights Out in Lincolnwood. Um it's uh, it, it's basically a, a, a it follows a family of four in a wealthy suburb of New Jersey uh, during the four days after the entire technological infrastructure of society collapses mysteriously at nine a.m. on a Tuesday morning. Uh, it's it's kind of like um, if you took a Tom Parada novel and you mixed it with The Walking Dead. Oh wow! Cool. Kind of what it's it's sort of it's just like it you know it's 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 basically like. Uh, what happens to white people problems when all of a sudden the problem is how am I going to get drinking water and food for my family? Awesome. So it's fun. Ooh. Like day two, the, there's a, the, the whole foods gets looted. Uh, day three, a militia forms mostly by the guys who looted the whole foods. Um, it's fun. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And Fred's going to do the, vo- the voice of the dad. Yeah, it's like there's four characters the and Fred's doing, and Fred's doing the dad. I'm very excited. Wow. About that. I just started Ooh. reading it. I haven't gotten to, I haven't gotten to the part where it turns yet. So now I'm excited because I had no idea. Nice. Really? You didn't, like, you didn't read the back cover? <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, I, I saw what you were PDF. writing about it. Yeah, they sent me the PDF. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds amazing. And it also stresses it's me great. out to hear about it because it's what everybody yeah. thought a year ago when COVID started. It was like, get ready. 
Yeah. Get, get ready for the looting. Get ready for the looting of the Whole Foods. It's, and, it's uh, fun. It's, and everybody it's the, in their bunkers. Uh, I will say, well, it's very, what's weird about it is it, it's, I wrote it in 2019. And, <gasps> wow. Um, and, wow. and it's literally the plot has become like a, it's almost like a current events bingo card. So it's wow. like, you know, so it's like last Jesus. summer, you know, it's first, first there's like the, uh, you know, there's, there's the pandemic and, and, and all the dislocations around that. And, and by the way, there's a line, I didn't change anything in the, in the book relative to this, but I, when I was doing the rewrites last summer, I, I came upon, there's a, there's a line of interior monologue toward the end where the dad is like, is really freaking out. And one of the things he thinks is like, what's going to happen when we run out of toilet paper? Oh my God. And I wrote that four months before the toilet paper shortage. Oh my God. But then, you know, but the whole, like, you know, once the, you know, once the riots started last summer, I was like, this feels a little on the nose. And then like, wow. you know, January 6th happens and it's like, oh man, suburban white guys carrying AR-15s. Like that's kind of wild. And then, the Texas power and water outages yes. were like yes. really on the nose. Yes. So it, it's a little creepy, actually. Most wow. of it, like half of it's come true at this point. Oh, man. Which is not wow. good. You don't want it's. I mean, it's a right novel now. about the apocalypse. Yeah. You're the new wow. Nostradamus. Don't write anything else for a little while. <laughs> a little creepy. <laughs> or if you do, tell us what it's going to be so we can be prepared. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being with us, yeah. Jeff. This was yeah. awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, super cool. cool. I'm glad that we were able to to make it work. Well, if you do another weekend, if you, I mean, like the daddy daycare weekend sucks because it's just daddy daycare. <laughs> but like, if you wanted to watch Shaggy Dog and Failure to Launch, I'll come back. All, All right. right. Absolutely. We'll, I will we'll not come back for daddy day camp. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Jeff Rodke, screenwriter of RV. So thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Come on, turn it on. What it up? Blow it up to you. Ah, Jeff was great. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Jeff's awesome. He really was. He was really, really fun. He's and maybe super we'll cool. have him. Cool back guy. for another episode. Um, and so honest, you know, just so honest about so how honest. it really works. And it's just like, wow, I, my mind is blown. He also, as you predicted, Fred, he made us, uh, which wait, uh, audience, you haven't heard these because I'm going to save them. He, uh, what you didn't hear is as we were wrapping up, he was like, all right, give me your Sheila's. I don't want to wait until the episode. <laughs> so we had to tell him. We, I was like, Fred had suggested that he was like, he's going to want to sit in for the whole review, you know? And I think we did hit so many points that, you know, uh, yeah. who knows, maybe we, uh, you know, maybe this won't be that long a segment, but uh, it was great to talk about it with him. And it was nice to, you know, to hear his take on it anyway. Yeah. Let's dive in. What did you guys think of RV? Well, I'll tell you, and I mentioned this to Jeff, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I was, I was very nervous to watch it. You know, since mm -hmm. I knew that we were talking to Jeff because I was <laughs> yeah. really, look, when the movie came out, I had no interest in seeing this. And I think a lot of it had to do with what we were talking about with Robin Williams. And we've talked about when we talked with Dave Itzkoff with Good Morning Vietnam that, you know, there's this weird thing with Robin Williams where like sometimes too much Robin Williams can be grating for certain people. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was, that was definitely the case at times. And, it, 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 and there's something around this period where I just, I don't know, I didn't have an interest in seeing what he was doing. And, and, and obviously, you know, in, in reading his, 
his biography that, that Dave wrote. I mean, he sensed that, that people, you know, were feeling that as well. Mm -hmm. So I remember seeing the, the, the trailers for it and the commercials and just thinking, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to skip this one. I, I don't, I don't need to see it. And then, so I'd never seen it before. So the first time I watched it was a couple of days ago and I was nervous because I thought, oh God, is this going to be something that's it just really, really bad that I'm not going to like? And am I, hmm. is it going to be tough? Cause I know Jeff and blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I really did. What's, what's fascinating to me is knowing what we know now yeah, about sure. just, it just that little thing with, with the daughter, what Jeff was saying, you know, that really did that would make a huge difference, I thought. Yep. But I I enjoyed it. I laughed. You know, I, I empathize with the character. I, I mentioned this with Jeff, like being yeah, dad, like dad, that idea yeah. of like the kids, you know, leaving. And, the, you know, now we sit in, I think he's got a line where he's like, now we sit in four different rooms on separate screens. I was just going to say, did that resonate with you about, hey, everybody's in different parts of the house doing their own thing sometimes? Absolutely. Isn't that Absolutely. crazy? And when he's like, I'm running out of time with my kids. I was like, oh God, that, that, that sort of killed me. Yeah. And 06 is before like, you know, they show a Palm pilot in the movie, but it's before everybody has like devices and before we're really giving laptops and iPads and things to kids, right. To like, yeah. Go in their yeah. Own. yeah, you know, but even then he's saying, okay, they're on their headphones and things like that. They're doing their own yeah. thing. Hey, guess what? What? We need gas. Ugh. And I really have to go to the bathroom. You know, we have one of those. Yeah, but after my last little shower of sadness, I... Okay, okay, do what you have to do. Oh, oh I, I, I've got an ICBM coming. Robin Williams is a sad sack, which doesn't work in this because for him to be a sad sack... Um, when you when you have other movies of this ilk, like the vacation movies, which this is very reminiscent of, like... Yeah. like um, like Lost in America, which this shares some DNA with, um, where where the 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 guy who's driving the RV or or driving the family truckster is eminently positive, so much so that he's you know he's he's leaning into Homer Simpson land positivity. There's always something you know that's yeah. good at the end of the rainbow, but it's all there's always something that's also driving him crazy, but there's always still the good at the end of the rainbow. With Robin Williams, the good at the end of the rainbow is being able to send his computer presentation and then be able <laughs> to get to his actual presentation, which also yeah. makes him and us sad. And I'm like that's not a good motivator for an RV movie. It should be that he, you know, he's doing, make it that yeah. he does want to connect with his family, that he does want, he does think this it, is it, the solution. It, you know, right, well, it sounds like Dan. that was the original intent. One of the movie ultimately, and this is not a Jeff thing. One of the movie's greatest sins in my mind is that it's a Robin Williams movie that absolutely did not need Robin Williams in it. And whether that's no. just because he was in a place where he wasn't, he was, he wasn't feeling particularly funny or yep. because the movie didn't really need, it could, it could have been any leading, you know, light comic guy, not a genius. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, the movie didn't require a genius like Robin Williams. And, and so there was something about that that I was like, yeah, I don't know I why think, he's in it. It could. I been think anybody. a Steve Carell would have had a field day with this thing. I think that was he was yeah, office very, already. It was. Know, he was just starting to. Yeah, it was. It was like in its second season here, 
and it was like right before he did Evan Almighty. So yeah, you're right. Okay. He could have been he could have been a, a viable guy for this. He could have been yeah, a viable guy or for someone this. like that. You know what I mean? Um, get get one of those Daily Show alums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In there to 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 bring some positivity to it. You know, you said uh, uh, you said the thing you mentioned Homer Simpson, and I I thought at one point I was like <laughs> I was like this is like a it's like a a, a live action episode of the simpsons in mm-hmm. terms of the um in t- literally the scene him going up and around the mountain felt like mr plow <laughs> right yes it feels like, yes it, it feels like there's a, a lot of these kind of the the, the physical Set comic pieces. stuff even the yeah. even the um the stuff at the trailer park and the kind of family that you would meet there that feels out of a vacation movie but it also feels yes. out of a simpsons episode to me oh mr plow that's my name that name again is mr plow I felt like in the second second half, yep. and especially the final third or yes. whatever, I thought it got better. I thought it it, it got too. better as it went along, as opposed to what the opposite is with a lot of these movies, is it just kind of deteriorates and falls apart in a way that is like, oh, well, that amounted to nothing. I actually thought it got stronger, and I I, I really kind of like the resolution of 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 that whole storyline and, and his relationship with his family and his, his work life. I, yeah, yeah I kind of liked it. I loved seeing it. him give the presentations, <laughs> you know, yes. to save, yes. the, save the day at the presentation. I was like, Oh, this is fascinating. Show me a whole movie about this. Yeah, and then coming up great. and giving his big speech at the end, which you see where it's going pretty early. But I thought that was, I thought that was great stuff. And it, yeah. it hooked me in. I was like, Oh, this is, this is, um, you know, this, the, the end of the journey is actually, being being done pretty well here yeah that first um that first time that he goes into the so and and makes that pitch when the other guy the younger guy can't seal the deal that's great but then his final speech is quite good it had heart obviously it started off with a lot of heart in jeff's original screenplay as we've learned and we witnessed it lost some of its heart because of the changes which it's so interesting to hear that he didn't think he wasn't as bothered by it because as soon as he said it, it really, I'm like, oh God, no, that was it. Yes. That's the crux of the movie, yeah. that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gets its heart back and I think it's, it's, it's like it's an well RV intentioned- trip. It's a, it, it starts at home. It starts from your, and then it goes and makes some twists and turns, and you know you get into some tight spots, and then it comes back to its happy home. You meet Jeff Daniels, and then you come back home. <laughs> yeah, lots of heart, and it's and it is very interesting to uh, to chat about it with the context of our conversation with Jeff. It makes you it makes you think as you're watching movies. It makes you think what was the original intent because you know in 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 theater it starts and ends with the words and the writer mm-hmm. and right. in film it starts with the writer and then it goes to everybody else <laughs> and the writer's like it's like thank you very much and Bye. then it becomes what it's going to become um mm-hmm. so it is really interesting to think about initial intent and it was cool to get his uh very cool to get his perspective on oh, it, it was so it was, great it was really uh edifying um so yeah so now we can say how many sheilas would we give our and we had told Jeff our Sheila's uh, earlier at the end of our interview, but uh, I go five on it, right up the middle, right yeah. up the gullet. I'm gonna stick this the same. I'm, I'm gonna. I think that's what I told Jeff, and I'm gonna stick to that. Although I, I did tell Jeff, I said the Jeff Rodkey version with the relationship with the daughter oh, yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, I'd give that a solid seven. Yeah, seven. Eight, this version, I go with the five only because I, I, 
I, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out what, what it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it was. It's such a little thing, but man, like those it's, little. That's fascinating because it yeah. does change so, so much. But uh, yeah, I, as I had said to Jeff, I'm, I'm a four on this and uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the poop section did a number on me. That number was, that number was two. Uh, was two. Number two. Uh, well played, well played. Ah, good times. Good so, times. yeah, insert segue to next movie, but I'm not going to do that because the next movie is something <laughs> that really shouldn't have a comedic segue to, and I don't even want to talk about it because I was so disturbed watching it, so we won't do a segue. We'll just say, hey, Jason, what's the next movie? United 93. Two planes just hit the World Trade Center. Nobody's going to help us. We have to do something right now. I need rules of engagement. Do we shoot this flight down? We have to do it now, because we know what happens if we just sit here and do nothing. On September 11, 2001, terrorists seized control of United Airlines Flight 93, bound for San Francisco. After learning of the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon that same morning, in which three commercial aircraft were hijacked and transformed into suicide bombs, the passengers realize the imminent horror that awaits them and courageously take matters into their own hands, as air traffic controllers and military officials on the ground scramble to respond to the unprecedented events in real time. Paul Greengrass's brilliant and harrowing recreation features a large ensemble cast, including Cheyenne Jackson, Peter Herman, Trish Gates, Christian Clemenson, and David Allen Bash, and displays an unusual commitment to verisimilitude in its casting of no fewer than 10 of the actual real-life participants on the ground, including, perhaps most notably, Federal Aviation Administration Operations Manager Ben Sliney. United 93 was one of the best-reviewed films of 2006, taking the number one position on more top 10 lists than any other film that year. It earned $11.5 million on its opening weekend, en route to a $31.5 million domestic total, and a worldwide box office of $76.7 million. Fred and Dan, what did you guys think of United 93? Oof. I didn't want to watch this movie. I'll be perfectly honest. No, I don't um, it. I've been avoiding it for 20 years. Yeah, I'd seen it before. Um, I didn't see it when it first came out. I, I, I couldn't. I was morbidly fascinated to. I wanted to. There was a part of me that really did. Yeah. Um, but I was like, no, I, I, I don't. I don't think I can. And I, and I, um, I had a friend in it. Uh, I have a friend in it, Richard Beacons, who I did uh, the Normal Heart with, and so you know. I was like, oh, I want to see him in it. But I'm like, no, I just, I, I can't. At that point when it came out, it was still, uh, you know, still a little too close. And so I saw it years later on cable probably. And I don't even know if I watched the whole thing, you know, I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I could do that. Um, It's absolutely harrowing and it's brilliantly done. I mean, it's, it's hard to divorce the movie from, you know, the actual events. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, how, how do you even, how do you talk about this in, in, in that sense of like, well, I'll give it a 10 shields or five shields or whatever, you know, yeah. it, it's, um, cause it just feels like you're watching a documentary in many ways. You know, look, I was, I was 10 blocks away. I saw everything and, and, and what, what watching this movie made me, think of, you know, one of the, one of the, 
Sorry, I'm just, you know, you get sort of like stuck. Uh, it's, it's even hard to talk about the movie yeah, when you go back. But what the movie caught so well, among other things, was just the utter sense of fucking confusion. Yeah. Yep. Of, of what, what, wait, what is happening? What? There was just mass confusion and the, the inability to comprehend anything. And, you know, when I was on the day, I remember when everything was unfolding, I had, I had, uh, I'd taken a picture of the towers cause I was so close, um, which I still have. And at the time when I took it, I didn't understand. I've spoken about this before. I didn't understand what was going on. It didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was out of a movie. They were so close to me and I was looking like so close that I was looking up, you know, like the perspective. It wasn't like I was, it was far away. I was you living like, in Tribeca at this I time? was in Tribeca. I was okay. literally 10 blocks away. So I was wow. staring up at it and it, I was like, this is crazy. And I, I was like, I got to get a picture of this. And I took a picture and I immediately regretted it because mm-hmm. of, of, things that followed afterwards that I saw, but it, it was, I didn't understand that. Like I knew, I knew instinctively that there were people inside there. You know, I knew that there were people in the plane. I knew that there was humanity involved and lives were lost, but I, I didn't comprehend it at the time. You know, to me, it was just, it was an object and it was so fantastical. And then a few seconds later, you know, it, it became very apparent that there were people there and and I and the realization of oh, holy, holy shit and what this movie did was it really showed you know what the 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 people involved were going through mm-hmm. uh in in a in a again that that word is just that's perfect in a, in a harrowing way yeah it's unrelenting uh, it's unrelenting also yeah you know? I mean because it is because they choose to take it from the moment that plane takes off and that, that's the thing the plane takes off and they really linger on the plane taking off because it's like every second before the plane takes off anything that could have stopped it from getting off the ground you could you could say once it's off the ground the fate is sealed yeah you know and you that's know the worst, everybody in it is you know there it, was it, an uneasiness in the pit of my stomach from the moment it starts because exactly like like yeah. yeah like you said and i don't mean i no, i feel like i i'm i'm you know i didn't want to make it about me and my experience in 911 no, that's not what it was it but is. it was just that idea of 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 seeing the 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 people who were unfortunately really involved and, and yeah, you, that's, that it, it's awful. You know, as soon as it starts and like seeing the terrorists in the lobby, you know, just the most mundane stuff, them, oh, you know, gassing up the plane, you know, it's just a normal goddamn day. It was a normal fucking day. Yeah. And watching that, seeing that normality right from the start, that's what's so upsetting. And that's what was killing me. It was almost like yeah. once the hijacking started, there was almost a sense, at least watching the movie, where I was like, okay, I, 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 I see what you're saying. It, it yeah. eased down a little bit because you're just building up to that and seeing them sitting in the lobby of the airport, literally literally amongst the people they're about to kill. Gonna kill, yeah. I mean, yeah. Mike, ugh. Listen, I'm not, I'm not taking any more chances. We got stuff flying around we have no control over. 
and I don't want to board full of these planes hitting every building on the East Coast. This is the national emergency. Everyone lands regardless of destination. That's going to cost billions. Just do impact. it. We have hundreds of international flights coming in. They're already in the air. No, no I, don't, I don't want any more international flights crossing the borders. And they don't have to go back where they came from. Nobody's coming into the country from now on. Everyone? Take a moment. Think about this. We're going to put. We're going to shut down the entire country right now. That's right. Listen, we're at war with someone, and until we figure out what to do about it, we're shutting down. That's it. We're finished. The fact that there were ten when I went through the credits, I was like, wow. I didn't realize. I knew it was very. It was talked about a lot at the time that Ben Sliney was playing right. himself. Mm-hmm. He's such a central figure. But in each of those different control rooms, there's at least one person who was actually there on the day. And you can tell in retrospect, you're like, yeah, it's so organic. This guy, it would be the greatest actor in the world. He'd have, you know, 13 Oscars if that was an actor yeah, sure. there because it's so, so real. But it's also fascinating the apparent ease with which they put themselves back in that place and reenact yes. I mean that in a way they are all great fucking actors because yeah. that is incredible to go back and take your memory of that time and then make it happen again yeah. recreate it like that is is stunning and, and to be um, able to play the fact again that whole idea that no one knew what was go- I mean they're they're never playing the end because it really was that's right. the thing I kept being reminded yeah. of like you hear the word hijack You know, and so everyone just thinks it's going to be not just that's not a bad word for hijack, but everyone thinks, well, okay, this is a hijacking situation. No one ever in a million years would have thought that they were going to use those planes as missiles because it had never happened. No. And so they really. Yes, it's it's a credit. I mean, obviously to the actors, but also to the people who were there and lived through it. And then the fact that they they never played what they already knew. I mean, yeah, it it was, they did a fantastic job. You know, I'm watching, I saw it when it first opened. I saw it the day after it opened. I I think it's a brilliant movie, but right away I was like, okay, what's the, the why, you know, it's this incredibly detailed docudrama. And I'm like, why is it being done this way? Why, Hmm. why this approach? Why this style? Why this mode of storytelling? And part of it is what you said for it, the utter chaos and confusion on the ground. The fact that you have to remember, you have to remember, nobody knew what was happening. And even when they thought they knew what was happening, the contradictory reports and the fact that they couldn't get through to the president and they couldn't make a decision about what to do meant everybody, the only people who weren't powerless were those people in the air. Yeah. If anybody was going to do anything, it had to be those people because nobody else knew what the fuck was going on except for the couple dozen people or however many people on that plane with the, and that, then it clicked for me. I was like, that's the why they have to show the chaos on the ground for that, the, the, the primal response in the air. They were the only ones who were going to be able to do anything about it. And, And that to me, it just kind of clicked together in this viewing uh, in a in a different way because you know it is like if we say incredibly specific and the verisimilitude but things you're saying like the you say how mundane it is fueling up that plane but to show shots of them fueling up the plane is also it's saying here's an everyday thing we do with a plane it's also yeah. saying look at the perfect bomb you right. never thought of this as a bomb but that's what right. we're doing we're pouring fuel into this monster wow, it's, yeah. it's it's incredible Anyway, That's what I thought of with those shots. You're exactly right, Jason, when they showed that. I was like, oh, right, because the fuel, the amount of fuel and the heat <sighs> generated by the burning fuel is what actually brought the towers down, as far as we know. Um, 
I had never seen this movie before. Jason, I'm curious, what was the reaction of the audience seeing it? The, you saw it the morning it came out? <clears throat> I saw it the morning after. I think I saw it the, the Saturday morning in Astoria. And was it and fairly it was, packed or was it, you know, it, just a few it was people? like um, it was like what you would expect for a Saturday yeah. morning audience mm-hmm. at a at a non blockbuster movie. I mean, it was yeah. more a little more than usual. I think there were there were a, I mean, clearly it did. <laughs> it's, it's weird to say it did well at the box up, but it did. It's kind of surprising that yeah. it made 11 yeah. million in its opening weekend for a movie like this. Right. Um, but yeah, it was like a, a moderate sized audience and it was it, it was funereal, you know, yeah, for, I mean, sure. it was just very reverent and quiet. And sure. um, I could hear some crying at yeah. points, you know. Um, but that was, you know, it just, and then, and then it was over and it was, it was just one of those experiences where it's just, everyone's silent and people just slowly get up and, and leave and, you know, but it did, it had that, the air of a, like a funeral or a wake, you know, in a, in a way. You know, um, it's so um, interesting to me because the, the, you know, we, we go to movies for, uh, myth for you know hollywood is the is our modern day myth makers you know um but even the the ancient greeks knew that there was something to the idea of catharsis right and there is something about this movie this was the first time i had seen it i watched it late last night and i i couldn't take my eyes off it i I was like all right i might get halfway through it and then i'll watch Hmm. the rest in the morning or something like that could not stop heart racing the whole time yeah it's a triumph of editing and cinematography. Oh, yeah. Editing, especially, was this up for any editing or cinematography Oscars or anything? Yeah, I think it was. It. It. I think because it was my up God. for best editing, and yeah, I might be surprised. wrong, but Greengrass was up for best director. It only yeah. got two Oscar nominations, and Greengrass was one. I think editing might have been the other. Okay, because I mean, just the check. the way this movie is paced, and the cuts, and the cuts, and the cuts, and and it is, it. it it's so, um, you know, in a weird way, it's it's a it's a through the looking glass sort of flip on its head in a way of the old movies like Airport 77 and things like that, where you really get to know the people yes. before they go to the airport. And everyone has mm. a story and this one's cheating on this one. And this one has a daughter and this one has a this and this one has a this. Right. And, and and they all have a story that converges on the flight somehow. Mm-hmm. This, you only get little snippets. You only get, hey, love you. Hey, send that email. Hey, do this or that, you know. And because you're only getting these little snippets, it oddly humanizes everybody in such a tremendously um, um, accessible way. And the fact that there are no stars in it, there's a couple of people you recognize, recognize especially yeah. from New York theater and stuff, but that creates this cathartic moment when a, they do make the decision to fight. Oh God. Yeah. And then the, the, the final shot is, Oh my God. I mean, I, I, I can't, recall um a, a final shot of a movie that is that is that um much of a gut punch mm-hmm. you know because it, the movie does does kind of fool you into thinking there will be some a, a triumph at, at the it, end it, it of really this. does in a way 
it messes with you. And it's like, no, actually, it doesn't work out that way. But it's cathartic in a way because you're also going, they fought. They and did. They saved I, people. I wrote yeah. that exact same thing. It was, it was so, I, I typed in big letters. I was like, catharsis. Because yeah. at that end, when you see Peter Herman just like fucking jump up and basically kick that guy down. Like oh I, I had a bloodlust. I oh, yeah. watching this, I was like, fuck, kill them. Like, I mean, it was disturbing to me, yeah. but. And you the, understand the, where they go when they're you beating get it. that one guy. You're like, this is what happens when you're right. reduced to the, the yeah. primal, right? And they had to do it. And I thought, yeah. God, I, I, you know, and again, talking to Richard, and I'll talk more about it in, in a second, but man, they did a great job, especially, um, uh, uh, Christian Clemenson, who played yeah, Thomas really Burnett, good. who he's sort of really the guy good. was like, we have to do something. Like I said, I spoke to to Richard Beacons and 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 uh, a friend Jonas. Like I said, sent me some insights from his old acting coach Jody Lynn McClintock, who was in it. And they pretty much they they line up. You know, they're very much uh, they're very similar recollections. So I'll I'll just sort of go with what. And I spoke to Richard yesterday. Um, and he played Richard was there. There was a there were yeah, two men. There was a couple. Um, and there's a shot of them. They're, they're looking at a, a map of Yosemite. Mm -hmm. The older um, men. Yeah. yeah, yeah the the yeah. two older men. So Richard was. Says the, something about the Emerald City. He said New York. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was saying they, and, and again, this Jody mentioned the same thing. They, yeah, the entire thing, but there was no script. It was all completely improvised. Yeah. They rehearsed for two weeks. Um, wow. And they based everything basically on on the phone calls, you know, what they could gleam together from the phone calls and they could sort of figure out, you know, on cell reception or whatever, like, you know, where people were, where they were, they might've been sitting wow. and wow. they filmed for about four weeks. He said they filmed in Pinewood studios in England yeah. and they basically had a fuselage that they built and put on a big platform. And hmm. it, 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 I was fascinated by this. They said that basically they had a bungee. The camera was on a bungee cord that ran the length of the fuselage. And what they would do in the rehearsals, and then when they filmed it, it was 30 minutes from when the hijacking began and when the plane crashed. They had a, they had a clock on the camera and they did 30 minute takes and they just did them over and over and over. So they would, so he wow. said they, they it, in the improvs leading up to filming and then in the filming, they would do it maybe four or five times a day. They just did the same 30 minutes oh. over and over again. And you, and because that camera was on a bungee, you never knew where it was going to be. He was oh, saying, wow. so, which I couldn't believe. I was like, wow, you had to go through that. that He's like, again. yeah, I had to go through that. In thirty-minute chunks, oh. four or five times a day, and and he's like, and For it's got to be completely, you know, at a hundred percent because you never knew if the camera was going to catch you, you know. And he said, wow. said there was one day where Paul Greengrass That's came incredible. up to him. He's like, 
I, I, I've been missing you. I haven't gotten too much of you guys. Cause he said he mostly focused on the people. They mostly focused on the people who had phone calls, you know, cause mm-hmm. that was a little easier mm-hmm. um, to figure out what was said and maybe what was going on. But yeah, I, I just thought my, I couldn't wrap my head around that just as an actor yeah. and as just as a human being, having to go through, having to put yourself in that emotional headspace. I, I, I was thinking that watching it, I was like, oh my God, how do they make this? How do they rehearse it? How do they, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, you know, we've all put ourselves in these difficult, you know, and not just for film, you know, you do it for plays and you got to relive well, the trauma every night. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, but this is, this is another level yeah. because it's yeah. so and realistic thing. and it's so, yeah. Yeah. And just doing that 30, going for, doing that whole journey, that 30 minute journey, they do it. Okay, great. Back to one. You know what? Now I know why they picked theater actors, though. I mean, yes, honestly, exactly. and I'm being a little bit elitist Dan? here, but no, it's like right. because we we know how to do. We, if you've been trained in repertory, or you've done eight an eight show a week, week or months or years, like you, Fred, you know where it's like, okay, I'm going to go through this, and it's going to be consistent, and it's going to be the same night to night or whatever. You know, You're you've done, right. or, you know, you, you you it's boot camp. Doing rep theater is boot is boot fucking camp. And we've all done rep. And it's like, you know, and and British actors talk about this all the time. It's like that's Mm. where you cut your teeth as a young British actor coming up. You go out to you go out to the regions, uh, you know, and and you do repertory. And that's what this basically is. It's basically like a five show day, you know, (laughs) of, of doing the same play. Uh, yeah, because uh, who same, does? the same half hour play five times and actors who do theater can do that. Uh, 4D. Welcome aboard. Is that the last one? All right, great. I'll see you later. I think we're ready for you to close. Thanks so much. You know, this is such such meticulous docudrama. And so, you know, all these things we've been saying, the verisimilitude that it's, there, there are very few instances of seeing the the artist's hand or an artistic choice, right? right a filmmaker's choice, but they're there. There are, there are a few. And to me, the one that stands out is when they, you know, which is another thing they had to surmise because they didn't know where the plane was headed. It was either mm-hmm. the Capitol or the White House and they didn't know. So they chose to make it the Capitol, Capitol. by having him like clip the, picture of what the Capitol looks like, you know, to the control. So he could know it when he saw it, Mm -hmm. how disturbing. But in those final moments when they're overtaking the cockpit and things are going awry, the picture of the Capitol slips away. So it's it's a a metaphor Uh for the it's not going to happen. They're going to they're saving the Capitol. That's the one thing they could that he could do to show like this equals all these other lives being saved, this yeah. terrible wow. event. And it's such a tiny thing. So it's yeah. a split second there. Yeah, but that little symbolism of the, of the, the picture falling away. That's, wow, that's great. beautiful. And uh, that's why there's few, very few. I, I don't know if I can think of another detail off the top of my head that, you know, that's that kind of artistic choice. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things, like we said, like even just watching them fuel, that's an, everything's an artistic choice, right? What you choose Mm -hmm. to show us is an artistic choice, but so much of it is just like turn the camera on and show the thing that happened or would happen or must've happened, you know, and this is a thing where it's like, let's make that happen (laughs) to Mm -hmm. tell a story there. Um, Yeah. Do visual storytelling with a symbol. Um, That is great. I did not catch that. Um, I love also that it's not just focused on. I mean, everyone on that 
on that plane who wasn't a terrorist is a hero, right? Uh, but it's it's not just focusing on the handful, the seven or eight or nine who who actually fought and pushed that, you know, in the movie, yeah. they pushed that cart down the yeah. aisle and, and let's roll and yeah. bust into the thing. And he says, let's roll. You know, it's not just focused on that. It's also focused on the people who are just sitting and praying, just crying, just calling their families, not getting up and, and fighting because either they can't or they or they won't or they don't think it's a good idea. There's yeah. the one guy he's from German. Scandinavia or something that that is like we should just let this let this play out, let them, you know, do mm. it. You know, there, there's the different sort of points of view there. And, you know, going back to our our conversation about dead calm, you know, Fred, when you when you were like, yeah, but it's like a you don't know what you would do until you're in the situation. Right. Mm. You don't you really don't know whether you have the the gumption, the strength, the the wherewithal, the the mental and emotional capacity to do something unless you were there. And yeah. this is such an interesting one of the reasons this is a this is a a, a a movie that you experience along with everyone is because you're also put there in the what would you do oh, situation. It's not doing oh. that deliberately. Yeah. Would I would I be one of the guys pushing the cart or would I be the guy who's like, I, I know it's the end. I just I can't. I can't process it, but, you know, just hiding in go the bathroom. Yeah. I, you know what I mean? It's, it's, how many shields? I don't know how you go any lower than 10 on this. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, I mean, ten. Uh, it's not like I would, I, you know, if I have Raiders of the Lost Ark in my hand and United 93 in my hand, I'm going to watch Raiders. I may not ever watch this movie again. I've never watched Schindler's List since originally seeing it. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know how you go lower than a 10 on, on this. Uh, I mean, I there agree. are no, there's nothing flawed it, 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 in it. No. There's not a moment that's, no. that's where you can say, yeah, I didn't agree with that choice. It's yeah. not, it's not that kind <laughs> of a movie. You didn't, they didn't say this movie thought it was going to be something else. It's no, it's exactly what it, what it mm -hmm. is and what it thought yeah. it would be and what it set out to be. Yeah. And it's brilliant every step of the way. I haven't seen a movie in a long time where it's like, I, I, I started it. I did not pause it. I did not get up. I did not pee. I did not move. <laughs> I just sat there with my eyes open and my heart beating for an hour and 51 minutes, whatever yeah. it was. So 10. Yeah. 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 I'd give it a 10 as well. Um, I give it a 10 as well. I there's nothing more to say. Is this our first three ten? Is this our first three ten movie? Did we not all give 10 to seven? I don't know. I gave it no. a 10. I feel like I gave it did a 10. Did I not? Maybe I, I didn't. Have, <laughs> Maybe I, I think I gave it a and gave it a 9.5 or something. <gasps> I, I don't know. Damon, yeah. let us know if this is our first try whoever's, 10. Whoever's Sheila. making the <laughs> try 10, whoever's making these transcripts, let us know. Yeah. Now, Ken, we love this movie so much. Some would say it's exceptional. Exceptional. Can you spell exceptional? Can you? Well, you did put it in a sentence. So, all right. <laughs> United e 93 is e exceptional. <laughs> Can you, is it a Latin? Is it from the Latin root? What's the root? Don't let's ask get, me questions. Let's, let's get Just, Aquila in here. Let's get Aquila in here. Aquila and your B. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good God. Let's let and now for something a little lighter. Aquila and the B. Fanciful. F-A-N-C-I-F-U-L. That is correct, and you have won Crenshaw's inaugural spelling bee. Excuse me. Spell prestidigitation. 
I'm sorry, sir, but this girl is only 11. Mr. Welch, what is this? Prestidigitation. You know that feeling where no matter what you do or where you go, you just don't fit in? P-R-E-S-T-I-D-I-G-I-T-A-T-I-O-N. Because it's how I feel all the time. Prestidigitation. That's correct. My name's Akila Anderson, and I'm 11 years old. Akila, played by Kiki Palmer, is an 11-year-old South Los Angeles girl with an innate talent for spelling. But even though her teachers and mentors, including Lawrence Fishburne and Curtis Armstrong, of all people, feel she has what it takes to compete in and perhaps even win the script's national spelling bee, Akila's self-doubt, combined with an initial lack of support from her mother, played by Angela Bassett, threatens to strangle her aspirations. Writer-director Doug Atchison initially had a difficult time financing Akila and the Bee until the success of the 2002 documentary Spellbound encouraged several production companies, including the newly formed Starbucks Entertainment, which to this day still only has three films to its credit, to get on board. Akila and the Bee took in $6 million over its opening weekend and ended its theatrical run with $18.9 million. Fred and Dan, what did you guys think of Akila and the Bee? This movie. Now you had said, Fred, that when we did our school episode, school movies episode, you said, hey, this movie is one of my wife and my daughter's favorites. And it would definitely be in their top 10 of school movies. Yeah. I don't know if I would call it a school movie. It wouldn't, I wouldn't think of that initially, but it, 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 yeah, they love it. They've seen it many times. And actually when I watched it, I watched a bit of it with, with Izzy. Yeah. Who had seen it. she She's seen it numerous times. Yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I had I seen it before the top 10 school movies, I might have put it on there because um, and I think I definitely would have put it on there now that I think about it, because, you know, I had war games on there. That's not really a school movie. Yeah, that's <laughs> it has <true>. some <laughs> scenes that take place in a school. But um, and this has many more of those. But I mean, it's about <laughs> education. It's about learning and yes. it's about about the, the 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 having the courage to to be great. Um, and I was very moved, especially by the way it ended. Uh, oh. I was completely, completely into Kiki Palmer. I mean, what a performance. She, I mean, she's, she's great. Dynamite. She's dynamite and just lights up the screen and you just fall in love with her and you just really are rooting from her from the first get go. And she's doing so many you know, anytime I see these kid actors who are just killing it, whether it's a Haley Joel, Joel Osment in Sixth Sense or Kiki Palmer in this, you know, you just you, my jaw drops. I'm like, how are they doing that at that age? Like that moment or that take yeah. or that subtle um, understanding of the subtext here or what, or, you know, how, how do they do that? How do they know? Because that took me year I, mean, I still can't do it what do you mean took me i still can't, can't could not do what kiki palmer is doing at whatever she is 11 years old or whatever. i listened to a great interview with jodie foster mm-hmm. with mark maron and she and i, th- I think it was this interview because you know she was a child actress but yeah. she was saying and when when they when she did little man tate you know she was saying the best actors like it's before a certain ages before they hit 12 or 13 or whatever, because they're not self-conscious. Yep. That's it. You know, there's, 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 there's none of that. There's none of that looking at what I'm doing. Yep. And yeah. And I think, I think that's it. I think that's a key to some of these, these performances. If you have talent plus lack of, yes, yes, you have that openness and that talent plus the lack of sort of, you know, taking your artistic temperature and making sure you don't look silly and watching yourself, watching yourself, you know, while you, I mean, that's the first, the, 
the the main thing that I teach when I teach acting one fundamentals of acting to my students is you can't be self-conscious. And we spend most of the semester learning how to not fucking watch yourself and not be worried mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what people think of you. You know, um, and you can tell that that Kiki Palmer already, you know, she's got that down. In, in, Which you know, is so interesting because like that's what her character is so worried so about. So worried about, right? That's you know, the it's all about what are people thinking? Yes. Yeah. 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 And even when she is starting to get all the attention and it's all positive, she's like, this is too much pressure. And it's yeah. really a movie about fear. Go over there and read the quotation that's on the wall. Read it aloud, please. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. There are some parts that are a little pat, they're a little trite, you know, not it's pat, but, you know, just, just <laughs> pat in the way that it's like, okay, it's, this is a, this is what you would expect. Okay, he has a daughter. That, it's Hollywood. Or had a daughder. It is yeah, Hollywood. It's, very it's funny, though, because there were times when I thought I felt the same way. I'm like, is this a little after school special? But there were enough little <laughs> twists. Right. That I oh, yeah. I was constantly surprised. Yeah. I yeah. found the ending very surprising because I was Me like, too. I was so angry. I was like. I was like, if she's going to, yeah, spoiler. <laughs> well, we don't uh, have to go into it, but no. I was like, if she I does what I mean. think she's going to do. Yep. Then fuck this for movie. him. <laughs> fuck it. Fuck this. Yeah. yeah I was so angry. Right. I was like, yeah, I'm like right. I hate, 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 hate. I'm like typing it, my, the running commentary of me being like, don't do it. Don't you fucking do it. Don't you do that. I'm not going to say what it is, but, and then that it was so beautiful <gasps> so and unexpected. Great. Yep. Totally unexpected how they yeah. went with this. I cried a lot during this movie, man. Well, every time I was in tears I wept, at the end. Yeah. Every, the the, the ending totally the got me. I wept at the beginning too. When <laughs> she first looks when she it. first looks at the picture of her dad, oh that's what got me. That's oh what God. got me. But I thought about that at the end, you know, when, when it gets to the end. And I thought, oh, is this Pat? But why am I sitting here, you know, choking back my own sobs? I'm like, yes. the, the movie still wins. Like it, it did does. something right. The it was movie affecting. absolutely wins. It, you know, we talked about this with uh, about a couple of months ago, I guess now with October Sky, where you were like, yeah. it's, it's moving, it's working on me. So yeah, even though it, you know, maybe it is mm-hmm. quote unquote manipulative. I didn't find this movie manipulative i did Not think it I. had the hollywood benchmarks of sure. like you know where you're set because at first i was like to be perfectly honest i was like is this based on a true story i, I didn't know yeah. i was like i was like <laughs> yeah. is this ba- is this a real girl's story and no I, it's not it's not and you can tell you know and I, i'm like even without knowing that for a fact i was like this is a movie this is movie this is making movie choices this is making movies and, and it works and structurally it's sound and it's it winds up being more karate kid than like you know mm, docudrama much so, yeah. but it's but that's fine right it's like it's because again she's wonderful argillaceous excuse me argillaceous can i have the definition please 
Argillaceous means of, relating to, or containing clay or clay minerals. May I have the language of origin, please? Latin. Man, that's a white word if I ever heard one. It's a trick. Stop playing. I also love the sense of community. You know, he decides he can't do it anymore. And it's like, well, who's going to be my tutor? Yeah. And so he gives oh. her, he's like, here's the 5,000 oh, cards. And just suddenly all those people, all, you know, everyone in your community, that's the part that I was like, yeah, bravo, beautiful. bravo, where she's oh, just using yeah. the community to help her. They're all backing her, you know? And I, I, I was very excited because I, I know Jason, you'll get mad at me because I'm going to suggest watching The Wire again because oh, her older brother, the, <laughs> the troublemaker brother was, um, uh, he's from The Wire. He played uh, this character, Naaman, from this great character from uh, from that series. So I was excited to see him, but nice. I love I, I that moment. The actor who, in uh, in the car, the one who like comes by and tells tells him help your help your help your sister. Yeah, he's yep. great. Help your sister learn the words, and I and what tells her about the poem he wrote. I don't. I didn't clock the actor's name, but I just, I thought he was, I thought he was wonderful. And, great uh, But everybody was. The cast is fantastic. The little kid Javier is like. I'm like that's a model Lovely. of how to be a perfect human being. What a good kid. <laughs> what a what a what a what a Can what a you? what a great attitude towards yeah. winning and losing and and competition and just absolutely just a beautiful portrait. I, I just really I I loved it from beginning to end. And you talk about community and again, not to spoil anything, but there is a moment at the end that pulls in basically. Oh, I think you were starting, starting to say it, Dan. Every character it's in the beautiful. film comes together in an abstraction that is mm -hmm. so, <laughs> it's so fucking moving. It's just, it's just gorgeous. It's a beautiful oh, movie. Oh God. Yes. Yes. I don't yes, want to say yes, it because yes, I, I don't know why I we know spoil exactly. things all the time, but this is a lesser well, known this is film a and gift. I'm like, oh, you, yeah, you yeah, want to give, leave this for people it. as yeah. a gift at yeah, the end I, of the movie. Yes, you're it absolutely really right, is. Jason. That, that, that Oof. moment you're talking about. Yeah put it I, I was enjoying it but that put it over the over top, the top. and it just and you're right everything came together there and yes. it was like it totally makes sense but you didn't that's what i mean like it, there were some elements that were very hollywood and like you, you know it's formulaic but it always yeah. curved like that that yeah. part shouldn't have caught me off guard but it totally did <laughs> yeah because Lawrence fishburne i thought was wonderful he's really Really, really liked him. I love just seeing him so grounded, and which he always is. But in, in it was, this, he had a little Morpheus in this, actually. Like in some yeah, of the, you know, like, that's what I was going to say. Is why didn't way. why did Morpheus not plug the words into the back of Akilah's head <laughs> and just give her the words that way? He can teach that would have been he can't read yeah. jujitsu, but he can't give her the words. Just yeah, plug it in you're there, right. Morpheus. You're right, right. I'm taking a Sheila down. No, no. But what, at one point, I was thinking about. Which is a movie which I, I love. It's one of my one of my favorite sleeper movies. Searching for Bobby Fisher. Yeah, yeah. And I'm and I'm watching and I'm like, oh, this sort of reminds me of that because yeah. of, you know, the the philosophy behind it. And then I'm going, what? Wait a minute. Wait, Lawrence Fishburne was in Searching for Bobby Fisher, mm -hmm. but he was playing the because what I love about Searching for Bobby Fisher is you have his two mentors, Ben Kingsley and Lawrence. Have you guys seen that movie? Yeah, mm -hmm. I did a long yeah. time ago. Oh, it's brilliant. Ago. I love it. Ago. I think I saw it with it's, you, Fred, actually. It's like these when two we mentors. Together. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think yeah. probably, yeah, you're probably right. And they have very different styles and philosophies on how to play chess. And Ben Kingsley is all like methodical and you do it this way mm. and you have to be serious. And Fishburne's character is all about, no, go from the gut, you know, just go like instinct, mm -hmm. boom, 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 boom. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking about that. And, I'm, and then I go, 
oh, wait a minute. No, Lawrence Fishburne was playing, you know, he's sort of playing the more of the Kingsley um, philosophy in this, mm-hmm. you know, of like taking your time and really, you know, studying and knowing and not going by pure instinct. But anyway, in thinking about that, it just made me realize how good Lawrence Fishburne is. Mm-hmm. Oh, that God, like yeah. really is playing that I didn't even realize he was in this other movie, you know, playing a very different character. <laughs> so different, yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he, I, I really enjoyed him in this. The whole cast, the yeah, whole cast was great. Really I, 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 I loved it. Doug Atchison, the director, I thought it was very well directed. Um, uh, it was well paced. It, there's some great shots uh, in this, especially all of the spelling bee stuff. That all of the different bees feel different. You know, because yeah. of the way yeah. he's shooting them, mm-hmm. and there's a grandiosity. There, there's a there's a level. He's it's like she's. You really do feel like she's leveling up, and it's mm-hmm. because of the way he is. He's either moving or not moving the camera, or going to wide shots or things like that. He's a very skilled director. This is the last movie he directed. He never directed anything after this. He he's mostly a writer, Doug Atchison. But that happens a lot, right? We're like you, we've seen this with other things. I think. Uh, I think Karina Karina was one where it was like the the screenwriter was also the director and does not really have a, a, a record of doing a heck of a lot more before or after it. So you say like, well, this is the story that was in the tank that they really yeah. felt passionate about and were able to tell beautifully. Because I remember thinking that I thought that director did a very, you know, I mean, I don't think yeah. that's as strong a movie as this. But I, I mm-hmm. you know, I thought like, well, that person had their story that they wanted to tell and they knew the way they wanted to tell it. And uh, yeah. yeah, I also say Agreed. any movie that uses the song Rubber Band Man is a winner. Used Avengers Infinity War. War. Exactly. Yes. And the Muppets. Linda Carter singing the rubber band man <laughs> in a long chiffon dress with a band behind her made of, you guessed it, rubber bands. On the that, was, that, was, that was on the Muppet Show. Though. On the Muppet yeah. Show. Yeah. I'm Googling yes. that right after this. But it was that my favorite amazing. Muppet Show episode awesome. ever because I was so in love with Linda Carter. Oh, and seeing wasn't. her sing and dance, I was like, wow. wow. And I just love that song. Also saw Mark Cuban's name in the executive producer credits. I wonder if he ever did any other movies besides this movie. I have no idea. But uh, did you recognize the commentator at the final B? Yeah, yeah. Now who is that? Now I did recognize him. Who the fuck is that? He's he's he was our um, Bill Maher lookalike from from the Dream Warriors. From Dream Warriors. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. (laughs) Yes. He oh, is yeah. fantastic. He is the the guy who runs the uh, asylum, right? Not yes. the asylum, but the mental hospital. The, yeah. Yeah. And of course, you mentioned his name in the beginning, Jason. But I'm going to spell it out: Booger B O O G E R. Anything with Curtis Armstrong. I'm all in. I gotta yeah. love Curtis Armstrong. But, but this is I, this is an unusual. Very, yeah, yes. Filmed. I was like, boy, what's uh, what, what's his deal? Did he put money in this too? Does he, <laughs> does he, did he have enough Starbucks stock to? Uh, <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say Starbucks a, points. I really thought you were going to say, did he have enough Starbucks points? That would points. also get you in the movie, wow. apparently. But uh, he's good, Curtis. He did, he's well, a lot he's of things. He did, did a very good job. I didn't think it was appropriate at the halfway point for him to say, you know, pan down to Kashi. I didn't think that was appropriate <laughs> in this movie, especially talking about Lawrence Fishburne. How many Sheilas? Ah, uh, nine Sheilas. I'll meet you there at nine as well. I'm going nine point <gasps> two five. Very good. 
Well, that's it for this week, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Opening Weekend. And a big thank you to our very special guest, Jeff Rodkey. Uh, Next week, we head back to May 3rd, 2002, and the release of the first motion picture in history to take in over $100 million on its opening weekend. That's right. It is Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, and Willem Dafoe. In fact, with Raimi currently at the helm of Marvel Studios' Doctor Strange sequel, and the suggestions that we're about to see a Spider-Man multiverse in the MCU, featuring a number of the original film's characters and actors, we are dedicating the entire episode next week to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, including 2004 Spider-Man 2, also starring Alfred Molina, and 2007's Spider-Man 3, also starring basically everyone you've ever heard of. There's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of overload there. Uh, and to top it all off, we are bringing in another very special guest, our old Hofstra classmate and prolific purveyor of all things Spider-Man from comic books and live stage shows to the most recent Spidey animated series, Kevin Shinnick, to join the conversation and hand out some Spider-Sheilas of his own. All right. Dan, now what? I... What Go song ahead. from United 93 <laughs> are you going so to hand on? It's all my joke. It's a theme from United 93. Oh, oh no. Jesus. No, no, no. I think uh, 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 Akila and the Bee had some good songs in it, but I think this the the one that I want to attempt to hand for it because I think it'll just be fun to do is the song Little GTO from uh, from RV. No, oh, okay. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it recurs throughout throughout yeah. the movie um, as sort of a, as sort of a theme because the RV is sort of the opposite of a little GTO uh, in a way. So uh, we'll give that a shot. Who sings a little GTO? It's not the Beach Boys, but it's of that sort of California rock. Yes, um, you're right. Vein. I don't know who sings it, but Fred will look it up. Let's see. I'm going to look it up a little. It's like Jan and GTO. Dean. I bet you it's Jan and Dean. All that matters is, is that your Dean hands song? are playing it. Ronnie and the Daytonas. Oh, that makes sense. That's Daytona. not a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> the Beach Boys did do a version of it, though. Oh, pardon me. Yeah. Right. So, but I don't know who did it first. Well, here's the Cheryl oh. Hines version. Okay. <laughs> A shit pipe exploded. Into your heart. (laughs) (laughs) So see a doctor about that. (laughs) Mahjong! We play Mahjong! (laughs) The opening weekend podcast is produced by Jason O'Connell, Fred Berman, and Dan Matisa, with editing by Jason O'Connell and sound mixing by Fred Berman. Additional help and technical support provided by Ethan Duff. Thank you for listening.